You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me tonight in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. And together we're going to be looking at and reading from chapter 2. This is Revelation chapter 2. You'll find this beginning on page 1028 of the Pew Bible, the bottom of the page, and we'll go up to the next one. We're looking at the seven letters to the churches. This is number 2. And it's on Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. Hear the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The city of Smyrna was a seaport on the Aegean Sea. It was located about 40 miles north of Ephesus. Smyrna was a large, wealthy, picturesque city with splendid public buildings. People called it the ornament of Asia or the crown of Asia or even the flower of Asia. William Ramsey writes the inscription on their coins was first of Asia. Contested, of course, by Pergamum and Ephesus, each of which was first in some respect. But Smyrna claimed to be first in Asia in beauty and size. It was not only the safest, but the most convenient of all harbors. And sailors loved the harbor at Smyrna. It was a center of learning, especially in literature and science and medicine. And at the same time, Smyrna was a hub of emperor worship, which was compulsory for its citizens. Once a year, each citizen had to burn incense on the altar to a bust of Caesar. When completed, a certificate was given, proving obligation being fulfilled. The common man saw this simply as a formality. You offer just a pinch of powder and you simply say Caesar is Lord. What's the big deal? But for the Christian, it would have been a practical denial of Christ's lordship. You remember what Paul said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. When he refers to confessing with your mouth, he obviously is talking about openly and publicly. We put our trust and profess our trust in and reliance upon Jesus as Lord and Savior. 
We openly acknowledge his lordship in contrast to the self-proclaimed lordship of Caesar. Jesus Christ himself lays great stress upon confessing him before others. He says, everyone who acknowledges me before men publicly, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, the ultimate public confession. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. If you go through the Gospels, you'll discover that whenever he dealt with converts, Jesus made them confess publicly. Do you remember the lady with the 12-year hemorrhage? She was healed. Why call her out? Why embarrass her? Well, because she was then able to confess with her lips that Jesus is Lord, and she was saved. So let's appreciate, I think, the significance of those who stand up here on the stage and publicly profess their faith on any given Sunday. The church in Smyrna likely was founded by Paul during his three-year ministry in Ephesus, We're told in Acts 19 that he was reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, and this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, widely disseminated. And this is one of only two churches for which Jesus had nothing but praise, two out of seven. And it's hard to miss the tenor of approval and affection in what Christ has to say here to the church in Smyrna. As in each of the letters, this one has the title of Christ, the condition of the church, and the promise from God. So first of all, the title for Christ, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. And of course, here in this title, as you can imagine, he identifies himself as the first cause and the last end. He has, in other words, ultimate authority over nature, providence, and redemption. As to nature... The universe was made according to his pleasure and for his glory. Paul says in Romans 11, From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. As to providence, he governs by his power and he disposes by his wisdom. Everything is under his dominion. The fact that you're sitting here tonight, he controls it. History unfolds according to his plan. And what a comfort to Smyrna this would have been, because he's the creator and he is the Lord. And of course, in this self-description, what Jesus is doing is identifying himself with Yahweh. And Isaiah 44, listen to this. Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Well, let's face it. If Yahweh is the first and the last and there's no God besides him, then as first and last, Christ must be God. That's what he's saying. And despite the prevalence of evil and the appearance of confusion in the world, he is in control. Jesus, in whom we trust, is in possession of incontestable sovereignty. 
So Paul can say to the Philippians, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's why we take requests at the beginning of the service. The Lord Jesus was at the beginning and he will be at the end and he is always in the middle. George Rogers puts it this way, the church at Ephesus needed to be reminded that his watchful eye was upon them to stimulate them to recall their first love and to do their first works. But the church at Smyrna had to pass through fiery trials and needed most of all to dwell upon the unchangeableness of his power and love. As to redemption, he is the one who came in the fullness of time to die and rise again. These are the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, verse 8. And those verb tenses are very important. Jesus passed through death, passed, and he's now presently alive. He endured the worst that any human being can experience in this world. And he conquered death and he triumphed over sin and hell and evil. That's victory. And his cross is the fulcrum of history and the pinnacle of time and the pivot around which everything revolves. Having assumed humanity, he laid down his life as a ransom for sinners. And in so doing, he paid an infinite price of blood to gain us freedom from the curse of the law. An infinite price. He died under the judicial wrath of God. And his corpse was buried in a tomb. And on that third day, he rose up by his own power according to the scriptures. And his resurrection proved the truth of all of his claims, not least of which is this, before Abraham was, I am. And he's alive forevermore to the benefit and the advantage of every true Christian. And they who share in the fellowship of his suffering will share in the power of his resurrection. That's a promise. And with that promise then comes a call for fidelity. You and I must strive to be loyal to Christ. And even if death is the price we have to pay, as Christians we are to remain faithful. Because he's the creator of the world and the Lord of history and the author of life and the victor over death. Just think of how important and reassuring that must have been for a persecuted church. It speaks a word of encouragement here. Fear not, he says, I'm the source of life and the ruler of death and the king of all things. It's as if he's saying, my child, what is there to fear? You need not be anxious, trust me. For those facing death or the king of terrors, that reassurance was critical. The things that you are called to endure will neither surprise me nor overwhelm you. So fear not. I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. You're mine. And when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they'll not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, it shall not, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Why? Because I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That's the title for Christ. But then there's the condition of the church in verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. 
And so first of all, we discover here that the Lord Jesus is thoroughly and intimately acquainted with their afflictions. They're not left as orphans. And notice that he says nothing about their achievements or lack thereof. That which heads the list and that for which they are known is their tribulation. They're suffering. The word there carries the meaning of pressure, as in being crushed beneath a weight. It's used of Christ's afflictions in Colossians 1, whom the Father crushed, according to Isaiah 53. So the church in Smyrna was being crushed under the persecution from zealous zealous Jews. Social rejection, economic sanctions, physical violence, personal cruelty. And the Lord Jesus was aware. He took notice and he fully sympathized with his children. And you know something, what this implies is that loyalty to Jesus Christ in a fallen world implies personal loss and disadvantage. Come die with me is basically the gospel invitation. We uphold ethical standards, we reject worldly practices, we strive to keep the Sabbath, which is so bizarre and anti-cultural. And Paul goes on and tells Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus and doing those things will be persecuted. Suffering may not always be in the same way or at the same time or on the same scale, but those who wear the colors, who bear the name, of a crucified Christ who sincerely lived for Jesus must expect to meet with hardships. The lukewarm and indifferent may escape, but not those who are resolute. Polycarp was Bishop of Smyrna. I'm sure you've heard his name. He was a godly, committed Christian disciple. And in February of 155 AD, at the public games, the city was crowded and the mob became excited. And suddenly a shout went up, away with the atheists. And a diligent search began for godly Polycarp. It was a trusted slave that betrayed Polycarp and the soldiers found him at his lodging. This godly man asked the soldiers if he could pray for an hour. And as he prayed, he made sure that the soldiers were fed dinner. Then they took him to the proconsul who commanded him to say Caesar is Lord, which of course he denied and steadfastly refused. In so doing, he exhibited unbending loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. There was no compromise in Polycarp. I pick up the narrative from John Fox's Book of Martyrs. He says the proconsul then urged him saying, swear and I will release you. Reproach Christ. And Polycarp answered, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? At the stake to which he was only tied, but not nailed, as usual, the flames encircled his body like an arch without touching him. And the executioner, on seeing this, was ordered to pierce him with a sword. And then so great a quantity of blood flowed out as extinguished the fire. Godly Polycarp died a martyr, Bishop of Smyrna. And it's no easy thing to be a Christian. 
But then secondly, the Lord Jesus took note of the Smyrnians' hardships and privation. Look what he says again in verse 9. I know your poverty, but you're rich. You see, the Greek had two words for poverty. One word means nothing superfluous, and another word means nothing at all, real poverty. So one could just be worse off than his neighbor, nothing superfluous, or one could lack all the necessities of life, real poverty. It's the second which Jesus uses to describe Smyrna. You have nothing at all. These Christians were poor. They were just scraping by. Destitution was faith-related. They had been oppressed, mistreated, persecuted, lost all of their possessions. And loyalty to Christ and a firm stand for the faith spelled material disaster for them. They lost all of their creature comforts. All of their goods had been spoiled. All of their homes had been wrecked. And Jesus was not only aware of it, but personally owned his people in it. Because as he says in Isaiah 63, in all their afflictions, he was afflicted. He takes whatever injury is done to you and I as if it was done to himself. And at the same time, the believers in Smyrna were truly rich in blessing. Because of their trust in Christ, we're told in Scripture that they possessed every spiritual blessing. They lacked temporal comforts. Those things that the moth devours and the rust destroys and the thieves steal. But from a spiritual and eternal perspective, they were wealthy beyond imagination. The true riches we have in Christ cannot be lost. They cannot be stolen. They cannot be destroyed. Smyrna, of course, then was poor in worldly wealth, but they were rich in the eyes of the Lord. James chapter 2 He says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? The church's true wealth, dear friends, is not measured by rich members, but by members' riches. How do you evaluate wealth? How do you assess the extent of your riches tonight? In estimating wealth, there are both spiritual and material, both visible and invisible. And Jesus here is referring to the spiritual, invisible, enduring riches of an inheritance that can never fade. It's undefiled and imperishable, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being kept through faith unto salvation. A Christian is the heir to possessions that no human being will ever be able to measure. Moses understood this, didn't he? He was willing to forfeit everything for it. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And Moses had an eternal perspective. By faith, he was looking at reality. These things prepared from the foundation of the world an inexhaustible wealth that's freely given. Matthew Henry says, this is a reward suitable to the price paid for it, the blood of Christ. So learn about heaven, deepen your desire for it, bolster your expectation of it. Again, if I can quote Henry, it will prove a landmark to direct your course, a lodestone to draw your hearts, 
a sword to conquer your enemies, a spur to quicken you to duty, and a cordial to refresh you under all the difficulties of life. But then third, the Lord Jesus was well aware of the slander of the false Jews. The early Christians were smeared and they were disparaged in all kinds of ways. They were called cannibals because of the body and blood of Jesus, of course. They were described as incestuous because of their love feasts. They were considered backward rubes. They were accused of tearing apart families because Jesus said he came to bring a sword. And they were considered atheists because they wouldn't worship Caesar. And they were identified as rebels, contrary to the government. And so the hostile Jews leveled their accusations, proving that their hearts were unregenerate. Their real allegiance was to the devil because he is a cheat and a liar and the father of lies. And the apostle John describes Satan as the accuser of our brethren. And like the devil, these Jews slandered the Christians and incited persecution against them. They were in league with the devil. They were true members of the synagogue of Satan. And I doubt the Lord Jesus could have used stronger terms than those to describe these people. But then finally, there is the promise from God. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. You see, the devil is a powerful enemy. Let's not underestimate the enemy. But he does nothing without God's permission. Jesus is able to overrule all things for his own purpose, even Satan's schemes. Joseph believed this, and he affirmed it as he tried to alleviate his own brother's fears. Do you remember? He said to them, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Isn't that wonderful? We see and are reminded that Christ is and always will be sovereign. He reigns. Nothing is outside of his control, not even the Ukraine. This ought to encourage believers and create a steadfast endurance among God's people. Whether the 10 days here listed are literal or symbolic, whatever it means, it also shows that this is going to be extreme hardship. Ancient prisons were not punishment, as they are today. Ancient prisons were places of detention, holding tanks, as as it were, because Roman officials didn't want to waste time or burden themselves with the cost and custody of criminals. So the prison in the ancient world was simply a prelude to execution. It was a mere preliminary stage. Being thrown into prison, in other words, was a sign that death was right around the corner. So Christ makes a twofold promise here that was meant to bolster their confidence. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. As sovereign Lord and resurrected Christ, he guarantees the crown of life, a crown that will never fade, a crown that will never tarnish, that will never be stolen, And for those being harassed and martyred like Polycarp, this divine promise was invaluable. 
Not only will he deliver them from suffering, but he will give to them eternal joy. That death with which you are threatened is not the end, my friends. It's merely the entrance into true living. So what it means is that we're not exempt from the death that kills the body, but we are exempt from the death that kills the soul. Revelation 2 verse 11 here says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Do you know what the second death is? It's later on in Revelation 20 equated with the lake of fire. That's the second death. It is unspeakably worse than the first death in both agony and duration. That one's forever. The second death involves eternal agonies that afflict both soul and body. So Jesus tells us, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both in hell. So Jesus calls us to exercise spiritual discernment and to be prepared. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. See how he commends the people of Smyrna, the Christians, how he comforts them, how he promises a reward to them. And that means that you and I need not be flashy or cool or successful to be vibrant, fruitful Christians. Smyrna is not commended for its gifts or its abilities or its education or any of its achievements. She was commended for her loyalty. She was faithful. She simply loved Christ. And it's so easy to miss this all-important point. And it is the most important after all. We may not be the smartest or the richest or the most talented or the most popular. What do those worldly achievements mean to a life in eternity? All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. Peter says the grass withers and the flower falls. What matters, brethren, is fidelity to Christ. Even in the face of poverty or slander or death itself. And preparation for this begins tonight as we strive to hold fast our confession. 2 Chronicles 12:14 The sin of Rehoboam was that he did evil for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Rehoboam did not deny God. Rehoboam did not turn away. What Rehoboam did was not set and prepare his heart for God. Again, Matthew Henry comments, he did not serve the Lord because he did not seek the Lord. Rehoboam's religion was of little consequence because it was so insignificant. Let me ask you a question. You don't have to answer me. You can't. But how does a martyr prepare for death? Have you ever thought about that? How does a martyr prepare for death? And the answer by sacrificing a thousand times before. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. If a Christian shows fidelity in small matters, he will do so in large. 
Those daily concerns that test his faith, they are a standard of measure. What are his habits? Does he fulfill his duties? Is he a reliable person? Some people think that they're very good friends because they're ready to help out in the crisis. And in some respect, you and I can appreciate that. We can count on them in the very hard times. And yet, on a daily basis, in the grind of everyday life, where are they? They can't be found. You never hear from them. They can't be bothered. They're absent. Fathers think this way oftentimes. I provide. I'm always ready. But they're daily absent. He would step in front of a train, if need be, to save his only child. But he balks at the inconvenience of seemingly insignificant matters, like helping with the homework. How many times does a child find himself in front of a train? How many times does he have to do his homework? Life has relatively few watershed moments. It consists in small details, a series of insignificant events. And there is more piety in being faithful in the small thing than in the great event. It is what most people consider small things that constitute our lives. Our Lord was conscious of the small things because he sees the sparrow touching the ground and taking off. The rhythms of life, the weekly worship, the daily devotions, the frequent prayers. Do not worry about or concern yourselves with whether or not you'll be faithful tomorrow. Be diligent and faithful today in your service and your worship and your obedience, and you'll prepare for whatever comes tomorrow. And let's strive to be loyal to him who obtained for us and promised us the reward. Proverbs 20 says, Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man, who can find? Culture asks you, Are you successful? Are you inspiring? Are you relevant? The Bible asks you, Are you faithful? Let's run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. Our desire should be to follow him in all things, not just those things that are convenient. We should try to walk uprightly, not just with our lips, but also with our hearts. And this we should do constantly at all times and under every circumstance. And our commitment to and our imitation of Jesus Christ should be deeply resolute. In the end, if you and I persevere, we will hear those glorious words from the lips of Jesus himself. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.